Riggs, welcome to The Dividing Line. James White along with you on a Tuesday afternoon, along with the pride and joy of the French nation, Rich Pierce, on the other side of the window. <laughs> the only man in the city of Phoenix that can sing the French national anthem in French. Um, you'll have to ask him to do that sometime. <laughs> I'd like to see that. That'd be sort of funny. Anyways, um, what? <laughs> Anyway, um, wow. The troublemaker from Texas just pointed something out. I just I just popped over to the ERLC Twitter feed. If you don't know what the ERLC is, it's supposed to be the religious liberty um, arm of the SBC. It's supposed to be the people that are actually, you know, defending religious liberty and stuff like that. What it is is the woke uh, the the Southern Baptist Convention funded woke group uh, headed by Dr. Moore, of course, and um, who himself has gone through quite the uh, evolution over the past um, 10 years, um, as so many other people have. But I started looking through this thing, and I mean, we've got some serious issues. I mean, California's going back into lockdown. Um, last week, you weren't allowed to sing. Now you're not allowed to meet. And there is a picture of a worship service uh, in one of these ERLC tweets. And it's just, you know, six people in a massive room with all these chairs empty and covered with stuff and this kind of thing. Anyway, um, you would think there would be something, you know, questioning this and, and going, hey, wait a minute. Uh, the The facts don't seem to back this up at all. And... Um, but no, it, I, I'm just scrolling down, and it's just a huge celebration of wokeness. I mean, that's just that's just all it is. It's just woke, woke, woke stuff. Um, yeah, here's the here's that picture uh, of this uh, church and with the temperature check thing and all the rest of this stuff and big old signs. You know, six feet. By the way, that six feet thing is completely random. It is completely random. You know they do do not do that in Europe. Uh, in some places, it's four feet, four and a half feet, and I've heard as short as three feet in Europe. Yeah, right. It's probably due to being meters or something like that, yeah. Um, which they'd have in France, too, as you would well know. Um, but uh, but um, it, it's completely random. I mean, it's just... It's just something that someone grabbed and and said, "Let's let's use this." And it it okay. I finally broke down and I watched V for Vendetta. Now it's it. I don't know what it's rated. It, it had profanity in it and stuff like that. But wow, that was creepy because it was the the whole underlying thing of how this government took power was. I mean, it's set in 2020, first of all. And secondly, this totalitarian government took control in London um, through the exact, exactly what we're seeing. Exactly what we're seeing. It's just like, and when did they make this movie? Wow, okay. And there were some interesting references to the United States being in the Civil War and all the rest of this stuff, and it was probably... Uh, sort of like 1984 fake stuff, but it was interesting to to see all that stuff. But uh, 
so anyway, it just sort of fits in with what I'm with what I'm seeing uh, on on this stuff. But it's 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 just so woke um, that uh, you know seven hours ago it is our calling as citizens of heaven and the United States to fight for truth, justice, righteousness, and peace, the glory of God for the good of our neighbors. That sounds wonderful, isn't it? And it's a article about how COVID nineteen disproportionately affects minorities. Um, and so, yeah, uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> okay, Jeff, I'll do my best for you, bro. Um, I wish I could turn the notification of that off. I'll just have to have to turn turn that off. But uh, okay, Jeff, gotcha. I'm not sure why you're doing that, but uh, anyway. Um, so Jeff's listening, and I'm I'm help I'm, I'm helping Jeff out right now. So that's a, that's a that's a good thing. Anyway. Uh, yeah, ERLC, man, I'll tell you, I fully understand why churches that uh, resist the neo-Marxist wokeisms taking over the SBC don't want their money going to the ERLC because it's sort of like sending, you know, it'd be like sending money to Pravda during <laughs> during the age of the USSR. It's the same same stuff basically going on there. Um, and then earlier today. Earlier today, U.S. Conference of Mayors, do you see this? U.S. Conference of Mayors support, you sitting down, 6.2 quadrillion in reparations payments to black Americans. Now, if you wanted, if you wanted clear evidence that, that the mayors of our cities don't have any concept of basic economics... <laughs> this is um yeah this is this is where it is. Um I don't believe that there are 6.2 quadrillion dollars in entire monetary existence in the universe. And that includes the federation <laughs> which we haven't run into yet. Um uh, what Yes, the Leonard Nimoy. Someone, I was just putting away today, but someone sent me $1 million Leonard Nimoy um, dollars. Uh, thank you very much. Um, that's what we're, that's, reparations will be printed in, in Spock millions. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you're going to get out of that, but seriously, U.S. Conference of Mayors support 6.2 quadrillion um, so that would be six thousand two hundred trillion. Okay, so again, I, I do not believe that all the economies in the world together have ever produced six point two quadrillion. Um, and, and so you're just you're just like, uh, who came up with this? Well, you've got Representative Sheila Jackson Lee from from Texas, and. And, of course, Senator Cory Booker, um, neither one of which have ever demonstrated that they could ever balance checkbook if their life depended on uh, Big time. Um, except I can't say that. Um, so, uh, anyway, Jackson Lee submitted the bill in the House last year to, quote, begin the long-delayed process of atonement for slavery, end quote. Um, 
Though the proposal did not receive as much attention a year ago, recent Black Lives Matter protests and riots have thrust the issue into the spotlight. Oh, I bet. Uh, so, <clears throat> here's the number. The six quadrillion number was calculated through a complex process that attempts to account for unpaid slave hours, a fee for the cost of discrimination, and additional penalties for massacres plus interest. Uh, the authors of the estimate conclude, ready for this? That would amount to approximately 151 million dollars to each black descendant of slaves. So every black descendant of slaves becomes an NBA player. Um, And a cost of... (laughs) This is serious. I'm reading this. $18.96 million for every taxpayer. So you get to owe... $19 $19 million uh, to pay the reparations they're, they're talking about. That. That's why I was saying, I've, I'm not sure how many I've got here, but I'm paying mine out in, in Spock Bucks. Um, I've, I've got mine right there. There's, you, you can have all the Spock Bucks you want. Um, but yeah, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, which tells us that our cities are completely gone. <laughs> it's, just, it's done. Just done. Now, that's laughable, obviously. It's laughable on every on every possible level. Um, this whole movement, that movement, is laughable on every possible level because of the reality of history. These people don't understand history. They don't realize that all of us could demand reparations for what was done to our ancestors as far back as we want to push. All of us including blacks, have slave owners in our ancestry. All of us, including whites, have slaves in our ancestry. Everybody. That, that's, that's the reality of history. These people have never read about Alexander the Great. They don't know anything about the Caesars. They don't know anything about the role of, of slavery in every nation on the planet. Every single continent. It's been everywhere. And so you want to start doing the reparations thing and everybody is going to have to pay it and receive it all at the same time. And no one can figure it out. It's impossible. So we look at something like that and we just go, right, 6.2 quadrillion dollars. Right. But here's what's scary. Uh, I also saw Adam Ford um, posted a clip from Nick Cannon. I'm going to get this plugged in appropriately here. And I have uh, brought out to the whole screen here, so hopefully... Now, here's here's the problem. I I forget where I was at. I I remember that it's interesting. I remember what the church looked like inside. I don't remember what city it was in, what state it was in, or anything else. But sometime, maybe as long as 14 years ago or so, I I forget when it was, I was at a conference with Vody Balcom, and Vody was asked to speak about some of the cultic movements popular in black America. Not just America, but 
primary areas. Specifically, you know, the beginnings of the black Hebrew Israelite stuff, and especially, especially the Nation of Islam. And Minister Farrakhan, Louis Farrakhan, uh, the most racist man you will ever hear speaking from platforms in the U.S. government. But again, we've been being told for a long time now, blacks can't be racists. So that has produced a tremendous amount of black racism. Huge amount of black racism. And Farrakhan, I mean, Farrakhan teaches people that, that, black, that white people are demons. We're demons. That, so our, our lives have no value. We're demons. Um, that's, that's how it works. So uh, there, has, there has been warnings about this kind of stuff for a long time. But most of us are sort of like, that's, that's out there, you know, um, let's support the black ministers that are trying to fight this stuff. And, and uh, you know, we've done our, our part in dealing. I mean, I've talked about Farrakhan in the past, and I've exposed him along with James Cohn. Um, and, of course, we, <laughs> Elder Akha still has a twitch today <laughs> from, from what happened only a couple of years ago when we debated. So we've done some stuff in black Hebrew Israelites and things like that. Um, all of a sudden, remember last week I read from the young lady up in Canada about melanin. Now, let me just mention this. I, I don't talk about this a lot, but when I was in college, I was a double major. I was, uh, I started my initial intention when I started at Grand Canyon college was medical missions. I was, uh, I was going to uh, become a medical doctor and do missions work. That's, that's what I was thinking you know, as a freshman. I wasn't even married yet. I got married between my freshman and sophomore years. And so I, was, I completed a biology major, and I was department fellow in anatomy and physiology. So I, I majored in biology, Bible, and I minored in Greek. Interesting stuff. And I've told the stories about... The, the day I was, I was demonstrating our cadavers uh, to high school students, and I looked at my watch and like, ah, I'm late for Greek. Thankfully, Tell Science uh, building was right next to Fleming Classroom building, and so I just ran over and ran into class, and it was second or third year. Second year, I think. Um, but I forgot to take my smock off. And so I've got that white lab coat type thing. And I've been demonstrating the cadavers, and we we uh, we preserved our cadavers not with cold storage but chemical storage, something called phenol, which they don't use anymore because it's been said to cause cancer. Uh, yay! Um, so so, but phenol, once you've smelled phenol once, you'll never forget what phenol smells like. And so I sit down, and I, I'm getting my Greek text out, and I'm noticing <laughs> the guys are. <laughs> sort of, sort of moving their moving their chairs away from me, and uh, my dear brother Mike Baird, Doctor Baird, the professor who put up with me for seven years, um, said, uh, uh, "Brother James, if you would like, we will wait for you to go back to the Tell Science Building and deposit your odiferous garment." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh." Sorry, because after a while, you don't smell it yourself. I mean, it's just, those 
those olfactory uh, nodes just burn out. They're just, they're they're gone. Anyway, so I was I know a little something. I mean, that was a while back, but um, I was department fellow in anatomy and physiology. I I knew my stuff, and so I know a little something about melanin, and I know a little something um, about the mechanisms that produce melanin. Everyone has melanin, unless you're an albino. I mean, an, an albino has a genetic issue to where you, you don't have pigmentation really at all. Uh, there are some genetic abnormalities that would keep a person from having any melanin, but melanin is extremely important. Melanin is, is a clear example of the fact that God has created us to live upon this planet. The neo-Darwinian micro-evolutionary advocate is going to say that by accident melanin was produced in some ancestral creature of some type and now here's here's the problem from the evolutionary perspective to produce something places a more of a tax upon a system you have to you have to get more food you have to process more energy so if you all of a sudden can produce something and it has no benefit to you that's deleterious and your genes are going to get wiped out of the gene pool being able to produce something as amazing as melanin um, in of itself by some random mutation is pretty freaky weird but you have to do that millions of times in the Darwinian timeline. It's the luckiest timeline that's ever you could ever, ever think of. I mean, from the Darwinian perspective, people have been throwing snake eyes for billions of years now. They really have. That's the only, only way it could work. But anyway, the idea is that you all of a sudden you got this melanin stuff, and lo and behold, melanin helps to protect bodily systems from some of the most harmful rays of the sun. Now, from our perspective, God designed it that way, knew that we would need that capacity. But some people needed a whole lot more than other people needed. And that's simply due to how much you are exposed to solar radiation. So everybody knows, us white people know, that you can get yourself a decent tan during the summer. But during the winter, it all goes away. Um, I mean, I have had some serious biker tans. And if you've seen biker legs, you know, there's this one point where cycling shorts stop and you get real dark below that. I try to avoid that as much as possible because I understand the destructive force of ultraviolet radiation. Anybody in Arizona does. Anybody in Arizona who's ever left like a plastic tarp in your backyard during the summer, by the end of the summer, it's gone. I mean, it, you can just go. Uh, one of my, uh, I've put up those sail shades. They're only going to last a couple seasons. I'm going to have to replace them. Um, because ultraviolet radiation simply destroys stuff. And one of them came down because I had a rope on one end. The rope, the rope was destroyed by the sun. It, it hasn't rained, so it's not. It's not that stuff. It was solar radiation. You need the protection of melanin. But if you live in northern climes, 
and you're, for example, indoors um, for most of the winter because it's too cold to be outdoors, it's a waste of energy, of your bodily energy, to produce melanin. There's no reason to have it. Um, it is deleterious to you to have that excess energy going into producing um, that melanin. And so, anyway, you, you understand that melanin's a wonderful thing, but it's a part of how much, how much you need sort of depends on where you are. And people who live in particular areas where they are constantly exposed to solar radiation need to have the maximum amounts of it. Well, all of a sudden, remember last week? Melanin connects you to cosmic energy. And melanin is all of a sudden the most important thing on the planet. Melanin makes you intelligent, and melanin makes you brave, and melanin makes you a god. And all of a sudden, the wacky, crazy, disgusting racism of Louis Farrakhan is now mainstream and acceptable. Acceptable in our society. Because of the Marxist Black Lives Matters movement. Um, so, here is a, well, here's an example. Uh, let's, let's listen uh, to this clip. Nick Cannon. And um, just uh, behold what is happening in our, in our society. Let's go to what it really is then. When we talk about the power of melanated people, when we talk mm -hmm. about who we really are. Everybody except for a albino person is melanated, just so you know. It's just it's just a matter of, of how much. Guys, in, in understanding right. that our melanin is so power and it connects us in a way that the reason why they... Melanin has no connective power. There is no scientific evidence that melanin communicates with other melanin in some other person's body. There is no connective power. It is a filter for ultraviolet radiation. Um, turning it into some magical woo-woo stuff uh, is destructive and racist, by the way. Fear black. The reason why they fear is because they the lack that they have of it. So then, when you see what you know, Doctor uh, Francis C. Wellesley talked about is that. So now, see now you see how these these falsehoods you you start developing quote unquote scholarship. It's not really scholarship. It's not it's not peer reviewed. Uh, it, it's not it's not defensible. But. We've also been hearing people talk about decolonizing science and getting rid of the Western emphasis upon things like logic, issues like that. That fits into all of this stuff. Fear in that 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 uh, just genetic that annihilation deficiency of mm -hmm. when you have a person that has ha, has the lack of pigment, the right. lack of melanin, right. that they know that they will be annihilated. So therefore, however they got the power, they 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 have the lack of compassion. Mm -hmm. That mel melanin comes with compassion. Melanin comes with compassion. Think about that for a second. Melanin comes with compassion. A, 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 
a mechanism for protecting your body against solar radiation is somehow connected to compassion. So when we see, um, when we see what happened in, well, Siberia, for example, well known as a place where Russia and the Soviet Union sent people to die. Okay, um, and so there's there's see, they didn't have enough melanin, so they had no compassion. Okay, how about all of the constant tribal warfare in Africa? Where, to this day, tribes kill each other, murder each other, and in fact, in some places, eat each other. How about the people of color in the South Pacific, where you still have that kind of tribal warfare going? Lots of melanin, no connection to compassion. No, you see, this is, this is connected to a very materialistic view of man, where you have chemicals determining these things. has nothing to do with the heart. has nothing to do with the soul. This is anti-Christian, anti-theistic, and from a scientific perspective, absurd on a level that's extremely difficult to express. Extremely difficult to express. Melanin comes with soul that mm-hmm. we call it. We call it soul. We soul brothers and sisters. That's the melanin that connects us. Right. So the people that don't have it have are are a little, and I'm, I'm going to say this carefully, <laughs> are a little less. And, and, and Catch that? A little less. A little less. Now, we rightly identify anyone who says that black people are less than white people as disgusting racists who should be rejected. This man is a racist who needs to be rejected. It's the same thing. If you can't say that, you no longer have any basis whatsoever for ever objecting to real, sinful, destructive racism. Because this is real, sinful, destructive racism. It's based on ignorance. But it's still a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the soul. Now, he's been lied to. It needs to be corrected. But it's still racism. And and where the term actually comes from, because I'm bringing it all the way back around to to Minister Farrakhan, to where... Catch that? To, To whom? Minister Farrakhan. Remember, Farrakhan says white people are demons. They're subhuman demons. That's where this is coming. This has been... In the community for decades. White devils, yeah, that's been in the community for decades. It is a form of black supremacy. It, it, it has no advantage over the Ku Klux Klan or anything that came out of that time period at all. It's just as bad. It's just as reprehensible. It needs to be condemned just as clearly. It needs to be refuted just as clearly as anything like that. So this is, there's no difference between this and a Nazi skinhead doing the same thing in reverse. It's all lies, and it's racism. The, the real, ugly kind of racism, which you can't talk about anymore because the term has been redefined to mean all sorts of other stuff, like, well, you're not a Marxist. And that allows this stuff, notice the communist symbols in the background, uh, that allows this stuff to then do its thing. They may not have the compassion or the, the when they were sent to the mountains of Caucasus, when they, when they didn't have the power of the sun that was that the sun then started to deteriorate mm-hmm. them. So then they're acting 
out of fear. They're acting out of low self-esteem. They're acting out of a, a deficiency. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the only way that they can act is evil. The only way they can, they, they have to rob, steal, rape, kill, and fight or flight okay. in, or, in order to survive. Exactly. So then these people who didn't have what we had, and when I say we, I speak of the mm -hmm. melanated people. Right. They had to be savages. They had to be barbaric. They had, because they're in these Nordic mountains, they're in these rough uh, torrential environments. Mm. So they, they're acting as animals. Right. So they're the ones that are actually closer to animals. They're the ones that are actually the true savages. And then they built up such this, this, I don't want to say warrior, but they built up such this, this, this conquering, mm -hmm. uh, barbaric mentality. Okay. That's all I've got in that clip. Uh, I'm not sure why that was, but, um, Wow. That I mean, you have to of course completely rewrite all of history. <laughs> so Leonardo da Vinci, he was a, an animal. <laughs> Just like uh, you have to completely ignore the history of Europe and has has every people had their savages? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In many instances those people are are for some reason, combined tremendous genius. I'm thinking again, I, I just, like I, said, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I just finished a book on uh, Alexander the Great. Wow. Talk, it, it is hard to hold Alexander the Great together because I think, I, I think you could probably argue there has never been a greater military genius or a, or a more brave warrior than Alexander the Great. He would not ask his men to do anything he wouldn't do. He led his men to battle. He was in the middle of himself. He was wounded. I don't know how many times. Um, just an incredible warrior. And as far as a tactician, his battles are studied to this day in war colleges around the world. He was brilliant, but he was as evil as the day is long. Enslaved hundreds of thousands of people, killed hundreds of thousands of people, and extended the Greek Empire all the way to India. Nobody's ever done what Alexander the Great has done. Did that have something to do with melanin? Nope, didn't have anything to do with melanin. Anybody who says that had to do with melanin is in completely out of their mind. Completely out of their mind. Has nothing to do with melanin at all. He defeated people with little melanin. He defeated people with lots of melanin. He invaded Egypt. Conquered Egypt. He, he defeated... Africans and Arabs and Indians and Caucasoids, he defeated the rainbow. He really did. These people don't know anything about history or the, all they've heard is the stupidity, the racist stupidity of Louis Farrakhan. And they simply believe it. They simply believe it. And we have had black brothers fighting this stuff in the black community all along. And they've probably felt they're pretty much alone. And part of it is because most of us just couldn't even, can't, we can't wrap our minds around, because I don't, I've never met, honestly, I've never met a white person that thinks like this in reverse. I just haven't. Are they out there? Yeah, but they ain't going to be talking to me because they know better. But it's all over the black community. And that's black supremacy, black racism. But we're told today there's no such thing as black racism. 
you can play it. And I will be attacked for saying there's black racism when you listen to people saying white people are closer to animals. They're savages. They're lesser than us. Well, that's not black racism. Yes, it is. By any meaningful definition of the word, it is. That's just stunning. It's just, see, the the reparations thing is just silly because there ain't that much money in the world. This results in people dying. This, this, this results, this will, unless God intervenes, this will result in death in the streets. It will. It will. (sighs) Little less, closer to animals, true savages, acting out of a deficiency where your, your body actually regulates how much energy it allocates to producing stuff that shields you from the sun. Your body is actually smart enough to know. Well, it's not the body that's smart enough to know. It's the mechanisms that were built into the body by the creator. Or the neo-Darwins will say that developed over millions and millions and millions of years, unguided, complete accident. Yeah, there you go. Wow. That's, that's just, um, and Ken, Ken1689, good uh, brother on, on Twitter, uh, he is melanated, uh, as to use terminology, had said in a tweet, this is the fruit of sin, the teachings of Farrakhan. There was a time when blacks were called savages, animals, less than human, and this was deemed racist. Well, the woke have been given a pass to call white people closer to animals and true savages. Fascinating times. Yeah. Fascinating, sad times is, is really what, what that's all about. Amazing stuff to see that kind of thing. It really, really is. Um, I don't see any. Uh, oh, okay. Daryl Harrison. It's ironic the canon speaks so magnanimously about the inherent moral and ethical virtues of melanin when those benefits seem to not carry over to how melanated people often treat one another. The black and black crime rates and black abortion rates speak for themselves. No kidding. Just look at the major cities. I didn't, I didn't even bother to look. How many people died in Chicago this weekend? How many people died in New York this weekend? Yeah, well, the nice thing, well, and the nice thing is nobody died of COVID in New York, but many more people died from this stuff. Might tell you a little something about the lack of priorities or the upside-down priorities today. What what I think of when I watch that clip, the one I played. I hesitate to bring this up because I know what happened to him, and you probably might remember too. Do you remember Jimmy the Greek Snyder? Um, yeah. Early nineteen eighties, he was asked a question, and his answer: he was never to be heard from in media again. Yeah, but he was a white man giving a less racist answer. A racist answer. Wasn't he asked why black athletes succeeded so well or something? Yes. And he he tied it back to the breeding that took place during slavery. Ah. Okay. And he was never, he was drummed out of media Yeah, most people never heard him again. Never again. Yep. 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 Yeah, I hope, I honestly hope um, that that clip goes far and wide. It needs to. You know, the other thing is? No. Do you know who... Who has Nick Cannon's old job right now? I don't. I'll be honest with you. I Terry I recognize Cruz. the name, but I don't know who he is. Terry Crews has his job now. Really? What was his job? 
He was the MC on um, America's Got Talent, and Terry Crews is now. Oh, well, and, for now. And then Nick's now over on A Mass Singer. Oh, that's where I see that's seen where him. Seen him okay. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not real good with names of stars and who's doing what on, on what programs. I don't spend enough time in front of a TV to follow that stuff. But that that that. That rings a bell now. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, appreciate that. Okay. Um, we will – I will try later today or tomorrow to get posted the links for Friday's roundtable discussion slash debate where – what's that? Yeah, you, well, you should be. Um, I think it's 7 o'clock my time. Uh, no, 6 o'clock. Six o'clock my time. I'll I'll check out. But Friday, uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a program on Thursday. I'm not gonna do a pro- we're only gonna do two programs this week. It's gonna be like a regular dividing line week for the first time in a long time. Um, on uh, Friday, though, you'll get to get a couple more hours in if you want, because Friday evening is an apologetics roundtable slash debate. And it will be live on YouTube, similar to this. And it will uh, involve four four different positions, but I'll be perfectly honest with you, only three different positions on apologetics. Um, Randall Rouser is going to be presenting his Reformed Epistemology perspective. I don't, I don't really see that as an apologetic methodology. I'm not really sure how it fits in, but um, he's going to be one of the four. And then you've got Jonathan McClatchy, will be presenting evidentialism. And Dr. Howe from SES, uh, there's two Dr. Howes at SES, but the Dr. Howe that I had my uh, dialogue with on presuppositionalism, whenever that was, that we went back there, I forget what year that was. It's been in the past six years, somewhere around there, I think. Anyway, um, he's going to be presenting what's called the classical or... Um, Thomas Aquinas style uh, perspective and then I am the panel's uh, presuppositionalist and so that's that's going to be I think really interesting uh, I'm going to be doing it from home uh, We I'm going to be trying to set some things up tonight and testing some things to see how it's going to work because we're all going to be on Zoom and then that's going to be fed into a some some way of getting that onto YouTube, probably similar to the way how we do things when when we do the same type of stuff. Um, and so that's going to be Friday evening, uh, a comparison of these uh, forms of apologetics. And so I hope folks will be uh, looking forward to that. I'm uh, certainly focused upon that right now. That's an important thing to be uh, preparing for. And uh, so one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, sort of preemptively um, respond to one of the um, folks that I'll be speaking with. Uh, Jonathan McClatchy wrote a article, says updated July 7th, so it's fairly uh, recently. And it is entitled The Noetic Effects of Sin and Apologetic Methodology. Now, noetic effect, of course, the noose is the mind in Greek. And so noetic effect is the impact upon 
the mind of man of sin. And what you're going to hear coming up over and over again, something coming out of my mouth during this discussion, is that theology determines apologetics. And therefore, the reason I'm a presuppositionalist is because when I apply the same methodologies of interpretation, that's what I come up with uh, when I'm also presenting the doctrines of grace. We just started a Doctrines of Grace series at Apologia. Uh, Jeff started last, um, Sunday night. Going to be continuing that this coming Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, I'll be uh, joining in, in that particular series uh, as we present the Doctrines of Grace. Eventually, uh, Jeff is going to get back to Matthew, um, but um, it, it's just simply we've we've had so many people joining us and new folks that it's it's good to make sure people understand where we're coming from and and stuff like that and um um so anyway uh the f- fundamental assertion I'm going to be making over and over again is the necessity of recognizing that we have to start with the bible teaches about who god is who christ is and who man is in doing apologetics we cannot since the Bible teaches us there is no such thing as a neutral ground, since the Bible presents the myth of neutrality, since the Bible teaches us the radical idea that everything that exists exists because God created it and defined it, then our apologetic methodology cannot abandon that foundation out of some misguided idea that mankind will stop being a rebel sinner and will stop suppressing the knowledge of God and will just listen to our arguments from an unbiased perspective. We have to recognize that's simply not going to happen. And therefore, those presuppositions that are a part of the rebellion of the sinner's worldview have to be dealt with. They have to be kept in mind. We cannot grant them a standing that they should not have. So, the noetic effect of sin is simply a recognition of the biblical teaching that the fall impacted all of man. When we talk about total depravity, we are not talking about depravity that results in man being the worst he can be. We are not saying that the image of God is destroyed in man. It is altered, it is uh, diminished, it is warped, but it is not destroyed and done away with. It's common for Reformed people to be misrepresented in saying that the image of God is gone. It, It is not. But what does happen is you have consistent rebellion. You have the suppression of the knowledge of God. And so... When I was reading Jonathan's uh, article, I was uh, I was a little taken aback, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, let me read a little bit some of it here for you, so you can get a get a sense. He says proponents of the presuppositional school of apologetics typically stress the vitality of reckoning with the noetic effects of sin, that is the effect of the fall upon the mind, from the Greek word for mind, noose. Ventilians argue that sin has corrupted man's ability to properly comprehend the things of God and understand spiritual things. Well, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, and Romans. 
In particular, sin is understood to have impacted our ability to reason and think rationally, especially in relation to God. Well, if you're constantly suppressing the knowledge of God, that's, that's correct. Of the apologetic systems, the noetic effect of sin is emphasized only by presuppositionalists. Now, I, I would question that. I have thankfully talked with evidentialists, classicalists. There's a lot of people that don't really make much of a distinction between the two. Uh, but I've talked to a number of people that that do recognize the noetic effect of sin and do recognize that apart from the uh, reparative work of the Spirit, maybe in some type of prevenient grace type idea, but still some supernatural uh, impact of the work of the Spirit of God, you're not gonna you're not gonna get past that fundamental rebellion that the sinner is in. Cornelius Van Til gives the following analogy to illustrate what he means by the noetic effects of sin. Now, what's interesting here is I want you. He quotes from Van Til. I'm going to read you Van Til's example. It's it's one of the, one of the ones that's well known. If you've read Van Til, you've already read this one. But I want you to hear what Van Til said, and then notice how Jonathan McClatchy interprets it because he does not he he misinterprets what Van Til says. And this seems, it seems extremely common, and it goes back to your theology. Theology determines apologetics. And it goes back to what you believe about man. So listen to what Van Til said. The intellect of fallen man may be compared to a buzzsaw that is sharp and shining, ready to cut the boards that come to it. Let us say that a carpenter wishes to cut 50 boards for the purpose of laying the floor of a house. He has marked his boards. He has set his saw. He begins at one end of the mark on the board, but he does not know that his seven-year-old son has tampered with the saw and changed its set. The result is that every board he saws is cut slantwise, and thus unusable because too short except at the point where the saw first made its contact with the wood. As long as the set of the saw is not changed, the result will always be the same. So also, whenever the teachings of Christianity are presented to the natural man, they will be cut according to the set of the sinful human personality. Okay, so, Van Til is saying is that in that set of the saw, if you don't have that set to where it's going to cut straight, it's going to consistently miss the mark. It's going to produce something that's going to be twisted and warped and basically unusable. And it's going to do so consistently over time. That's his analogy. That's what he's saying. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 1. The rebellion of man and sin impacts all of human thought. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Their foolish hearts were darkened. That darkening of the heart is the very inner aspect of man. There, there's, there's nothing more personal than that. So, notice what Jonathan says. He says, I would argue, however, that while the imago dei is effaced by human sin, it is not erased. Stop. Ventil never said it was. We don't believe it was. I know Geisler said we said that, and I've heard lots of... It is a common myth. It's a common myth. We do not teach that the image of God has been 
erased. And Van Til didn't say anything about erasure of the image of God. He's talking about the set of the saw is the, is the function that presuppositions have in the determination of a worldview. And so if you have a person who is suppressing the knowledge of God, and there are many ways of doing that. The atheist can do it. The religious person can do it. You can have religious suppression. You can have non-religious suppression. You can have plain old uh, uh, addiction. Utilization of drugs and alcohol is a form of the suppression of the knowledge of God. There are lots of different ways of doing it. That does not mean that the Imago Dei has been erased. But these presuppositions change the set of the saw so that when the revelation of God's truth comes to the rebel sinner, it is twisted and altered so that that truth is deflected from revealing the key issue, and that is, you are the creature of God, and you are in rebellion against God. You don't have any right to be sitting up there on that throne. That's God's throne. You don't have any right to be up there. You cannot put God in the dock and judge God. You are his creature. He made you. He has perfect right over you. And whatever you've got to do to the set of the saw to keep it from cutting into that, that's what you do. You can do it religiously. You can do it secularly. You can do it in all sorts of different ways. So, no one is saying that the Imago Dei is erased. Okay? He says, I do not believe that sin renders us totally incapable of rational thought. Well, how do you define rational? If, if, the, if we are made to think God's thoughts, if we are made to honor and glorify him in all things, then the most perfect rational thought will be that thought that is in complete harmony with and submission to the lordship of God in all things. That, that will be the most rational thought. So if I am suppressing the knowledge of God, then I, there are uh, many unbelievers who can teach symbolic logic. But they cannot account for why what they teach one semester is the same as what they teach another semester. <laughs> so they cannot account for the origin of of the consistency of those laws of thought. But they can teach the laws of thought. And I have met, uh, I, I remember when uh, I wrote um, the little book, um, What's with the Mutant in the Microscope? I really wish those had been kept in print. Um, what's, what was, what's with the Mutant in the Microscope for junior high schoolers, but a lot of adults found it to be extremely useful. Anyways, one of the um, things I point out is back when as I said earlier in the program, I was department fellow in anatomy and physiology. I was at a Christian college, but we did not use Christian textbooks. So we had secular scientific textbooks written by unbelievers, promoting evolutionary theory, naturalistic worldview, so on and so forth. Yet in those very textbooks, the authors, because they're made in the image of God, could not avoid but use language when you see the complexity of life 
and its plain and obvious design, they would let the mask slip. This was back before everybody had to wear them all the time. They would let the mask, this, the other mask, the mask of hiding, um, they'd let the mask slip, and they would say things, they would actually use terms like beautiful, of the interactive complexity of biological systems. Well, and then they might, a few sentences later, try to sort of admit they shouldn't have talked about design and things like that, but they, they can't help themselves. They cannot help themselves. And so, what, do you, what, what is meant by rational thought? If you think what we're saying is, unless you're a Christian, you can't do calculus or geometry or trigonometry. I, I was never really big into the mathematics, but the, th- the thing I loved the most was when we did geometric proofs and stuff like that. I thought that was, that was awesome. That was sophomore year in high school, and I, I thought it was, it was great. There were other guys in the class that weren't believers that could do the exact same thing I could. So we're not saying that. What we are saying is that as long as you are, and this is theology determines apologetics. The Christian faith says every person is the creature of God, the creation of God. And therefore, if you live in such a way as to consistently suppress that reality, then there you are not going to be perfectly rational. It's the, it's the consistency issue that comes up here. What you're doing up here isn't going to connect down here with the foundation. That's where, that's where the issue is. Okay? Uh, he says, to the contrary, as the late classical apologist R.C. Sproul points out, and I would highly recommend listening to the conversation between Bonson and Sproul on these issues, The best pagan thinkers can still spot errors of logic without being born again. You don't have to be regenerate in order to get a PhD in mathematics. Yes, that's what R.C. said, but R.C. would have totally disagreed with everything that came before this from Jonathan McClatchy. I can guarantee you that. I can guarantee you that. He would not have agreed that what even the presuppositionalist is saying is that the Imago Dei has been erased, and he would agree with what I just said in regards to the suppression of the knowledge of God. He would. Just did that. I'm not sitting here going, because I knew R.C., you know, we had dinner together. I'm not saying that. I'm saying because I've listened to his dialogue with Greg Bonson, listened to it twice recently, to refresh my mind on it. And, and it was recorded years and years ago. Um, very, very clear. Very, very clear. Um, so, um, indeed, the suppression described in Romans 1, 18-20 is, I would suggest, a voluntary one, though one lapsed into easily enough due perhaps to ordinary cognitive biases. That is why Paul can describe the unbeliever as being without excuse. He could do better if he tried, but he does not. Thus, in the relevant sense in which presuppositionalists have in mind, I am not convinced that there is such a thing as the noetic effects of sin. 
wow. Um, okay. That's that's a huge gap. That is a chasm. Um, and that that is a chasm that only a few have been willing to stand on that other side uh, down through the history of the church with quite that boldness. Even those who affirmed a concept of freedom of the will wanted to recognize biblical teaching on this subject, and that's where prevenient grace came from and stuff like that. Just to simply boldly say there is no sin does not affect the mind of man really leaves you in a difficult spot. And so I'd like to compare that with uh, the text of Scripture, specifically in Romans chapter 1. I'd like to go through it. I'm not going to have time to do this on Friday night. I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and go, well, just listen to what I said before. Um, this is just simply what I'm thinking about and assuming it's going to be coming up. And so I thought I would share it on the program today. And whenever I just get done with this, we'll, be, we'll wrap things up and we will, we will be done. Um, so how can one come to that type of a conclusion in light of not only the passages that say, to speak of man's inability. No one can come to me unless the Father sent him and draws him. Couldn't you, couldn't you come up with, couldn't you observe the ministry of Jesus and come to the conclusion that you should follow him just simply from a unbiased examination of the facts? It seems to be what's being said. Jesus' teaching is no. Um, you will only hear his words when you belong to God, not by you choosing to belong to God, by God choosing you to belong to him. Then you can hear his words and follow after him. That's the order of John 6, John 8, John 10. So you, you have those clear passages of Scripture along that those lines. But I just don't see how any of that deals with Romans chapter 1. And, and I know that Romans chapter 1 is going to come up because Randall Rouser's... Um, hypothesis posits a truly unique reading of Romans chapter 1 as well. So let's remind ourselves of something we've spoken of many, many times before. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Present tense reality. Present tense reality. It's, it's, there is a sense in which the full wrath of God is eschatological in the final state, the final judgment. But it is necessary in light of the continuing presence of human sin for the wrath of God to be being expressed. It is restrained because obviously if it were just simply to break forth in its fullness, you just destroy all of humankind, but that isn't what he's chosen to do. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not just some. There's a lot of people that want to try to say Romans 1 is just about a certain group of people. No. This says all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then who, what men? The ones, the truth in unrighteousness, katakantone, suppressing. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. 
Now, there, there are people who would say this is just a particular group of idolaters that Paul's referring to. It is not. When you look at Romans 1, 2, and 3 together, you discover that Paul provides his own concluding interpretation in chapter 3. He says, we have concluded that all men are under sin. Well, where did he do that? Chapter 2 is about the Jews, because the Jews could agree with what he said about the rest, the Gentiles, in Romans chapter 1. So his own interpretation of his own words is that we are talking about universal sinfulness here. And his point is going to be, he is talking universally in Romans chapter 1. He has to address the Jews separately in Romans chapter 2, because they already knew this stuff. They already said, yes, this is the problem with the Gentiles, and didn't realize they were doing the same things, just in a different way. So, the wrath of God is aimed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and then you have a descriptive, the use of tone, wrapping up a phrase, referring us back to anthropon, the, the truth in unrighteousness suppressing ones. So this is the description. The person who is not in proper relationship to God is the person who is suppressing. Got a contone? Active. There is a suppression of the knowledge of God. Now, people want to argue about, well, how uh, how cognizant, how conscience, conscious are people of this suppression? Um, the guy who just goes out every weekend and fulfills his lusts and gets drunk and just does his thing is not nearly as um, focused upon the reality of that suppression as someone else. It's still suppression of the knowledge of God. And here's the, this is why this is important. This is fundamental to apologetics. If you believe what Romans chapter 1 says about man, it will determine how you do apologetics. It really will. Uh, because you, you, you're recognizing what this means about mankind. So, they are suppressing the truth of God and righteousness because that which is known, not knowable, known. This is key. There's a, there's a teacher here in the valley that years and years ago I had to engage on this, and he's still teaching this and has caused all sorts of problems. But what is known of God, not just theoretically not known, but what is known of God is manifest en altois, which can be within them or amongst them, depending on how you want to look at it. So you could, you could be looking at an internal witness. You can be looking at an internal witness in the community, general revelation, which is what's going to be coming up afterwards. Could be both. But it is known of God. Not theoretically, but in reality, is manifest amongst them for God manifest it to them. This is a divine action. God is the subject of the verb ephanerosen. He is the one who has made the revelation to them. And the whole point of Paul's assertion is going to be that revelation gets through. God 
manifested it to them. Romans 1.19. For, and the, the Greek word order of Romans 1.20 and the English word order of Romans 1.20 are really different. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world to the things that have been made um, have been clearly seen. And then you have a phrase that describes, well, what are the invisible things of him? What, what, what are his invisible attributes that have been uh, revealed? Well, his eternal power and thyates, which the King James mistranslates as being identical to theatetos in Colossians 2.9. Translates both of them as Godhead, whatever in the world that means. Um, here it's divine nature. In Colossians 2.9, it's a different word. It means that which makes God God. This is a less strong term than what you have in Colossians 2.9. So his uh, eternal power and divine nature are these invisible attributes which have been made known so, with the result that, the result of this revelation is that they are unapologetus, they are without an apologetic. They are without a consistent defense. It does not say they have no arguments, it does not say that these people are stupid and they just sit there and go, well, I'm an atheist and you're dumb. That, that, not what it's saying at all. Anapologetus would mean that there is no consistent defense for their suppression of the knowledge of God. In light of what? In light of the action of God, verse 19, where he has revealed these things. The only way to understand this is it's gotten through. It's gotten through. And I just... I want to challenge the classicalist. I want to challenge the evidentialist. This is saying they are unapologetus. Do you treat them as if they are apologetus? Do you treat them as if they're... When you step onto allegedly neutral ground with the atheist, with the skeptic, are you not admitting that they have the same apologetic you do? Is there not an act of compromise? You see, I don't believe in the myth of neutrality. I do not believe there is any place I can stand in the universe that Jesus created, in the universe that, according to Colossians chapter 1, all things sunestekin in him. They hold together. They have their coherence in him. Where's the neutral spot? There is no neutral spot. There can't be a neutral spot. It's impossible. If you stand on it, Jesus created it and defined it. So it's not neutral to its creator. Right? That's why theology must determine apologetics and not the other way around. There's no, there's no neutral spot. But if I for a moment, concede 
And some people say, well, it's just for the sake of argument. But it's a fundamental denial of the central aspect of my worldview. If I, for a moment, concede that they have an apologetus, that they can present a consistent argument, I am contradicting Paul at Romans 1.20. He says they're unapologetus. My my apologetic must contain within it the reality that they don't have that. And that's what the presuppositionalist is trying to say. The presuppositionalist is saying, you critique, you provide the internal critique of the argumentation because it can't hold up. They are living in a world that God made while trying to deny that he's there. They will eventually trip up. They will eventually trip up. You provide the internal critique because they are unapologetus. So they're without excuse for even though they knew God. That, that's, that's a direct statement. Did they or did they not? If, if you don't like that idea, then take it up with the Apostle Paul. I didn't write it. But it says, even though they knew God, and that's why so many people try to go, well, okay, this is clearly about some group. We're just not sure who it was, uh, because this, this just can't be everybody. No, it is. That's why they're unapologetus. They live in God's world. They're made in his image. Even though they knew God, they did not do what? Now, here are the two things that mankind is accountable to God to do based on simply bearing his image and living in his world. Without special revelation, without Genesis through Revelation, without a can of Scripture, the savage on the unreached island, and there's still a few of them out there, is held accountable in light of the clarity of the revelation of God to glorify God and give thanks. You go to Steo. To give thanks. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. The revelation is clear enough to reveal to them that they should do this, but they do not. But, and here we go, they became futile, empty, entois dialogus mois in their reasoning, their dialogue. This is part of the innermost part of man. If you will not do, if you will not give to your creator what creation shows you you should give to your creator, you will not escape a result. The result is becoming futile, empty, worthless in the reasonings of your heart. And their foolish, that is, non-understanding heart, was darkened. Their foolish heart was darkened. 
This is the inevitable result of rebellion against the Creator. No neutrality. This isn't just some special group that fell into a special kind of sin. Because Paul's own interpretation in Romans chapter 3, we've concluded everybody is under sin. That's Romans 1. That's Romans 2. Ties them together in Romans 3. They're all under sin. Their non-understanding heart is darkened. Darkened. Now, if that's not the noetic effect of sin, I, Jonathan, I'm going to be asking you. you I'm, I'm giving you a couple days. This is the question I'm going to ask you. Th- this seems to me to be without argumentation. Their foolish hearts are darkened. That explains why in 1 Corinthians, same message, the same message, Jew and Gentile, stumbling block, moria, foolishness. To, to those who are, who are perishing, same message. They, they can't understand it. It's foolishness to them. But to those who are being saved, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. That's the same apostle here. Their foolish hearts were darkened and professing themselves safoy, exact, the exact same two terms used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 are right here. Safoy and moron. <laughs> Moroi, here in the verbal form, a moron They were made foolish. They became fools. Professing to be wise. But standing outside of the lordship of their creator, as if they can, in some way, find a ground to stand on. There's, there's no place to stand. There's no place to stand. And then, key, verse 23, the exchange. The exchange. It's going to come up again in verse 25. The exchange. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, an iconos, in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and tetrapodon, it simply means four footed, four-legged creatures, and crawling creatures, herpetones. This could be snakes and things like that, but might be a little bit wider than that in its use. They exchanged. This exchange is key to understanding what Paul is talking about here. And again, what it demonstrates is this sin impacts all of man. That's what total depravity is all about. There is no aspect of man, including the noose, that is not darkened and impacted by sin, by rebellion. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to uncleanness so that they might dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. So if you're willing to exchange the glory of the intractable God 
for the cre- for the creation because that's that's what this is all about. Here's what idolatry looks like. It's the great exchange. God has revealed himself, he's revealed himself with clarity, but you got the great exchange. And so he gives them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so they might dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. For they exchanged, same root, just a strength and form, the truth of God for the lie. The truth of God for the lie. Remember what Paul said when he wrote to Thessalonians. If you don't love the truth, God will cause you to love the lie. There can be no, there's, there's no neutrality. It's one or the other. And worshipped and served the creation, the created order, rather than the one who made it, the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So here is the very nature of what this rebellion is. And Paul's whole point is that all of man is impacted by the suppression of the knowledge of God. No neutrality. No place to go. I think this is perfectly in line with what he says in Romans chapter 8 about those who are according to the flesh cannot please God, they can't submit themselves to God. It's perfectly in line with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. And as such, must be the determinative aspect of what we as Christians under the authority of Scripture conclude in regards to how we do apologetics. We have to allow the Scriptures to define who it is we're dealing with and what their spiritual condition is. I'm not, I can't sit there and dig through all the layers of deception. I have a true diagnosis in Scripture itself. And therefore, can seek to be consistent in my apologetic approach because I've allowed Scripture to define who God is, the creator of all things, who Jesus is, and then who that person is that I'm seeking to reach. Vitally important. So, that's where my challenge is going to be. You want to talk about the noetic effects of sin? There it is. It goes on from there. Homosexuality in verses 26-27 is a part of the demonstration of what the noetic effects of sin really are. Um, that, is a, that is an aspect. Even that definitional sexual aspect of mankind is perverted by the rebellion. That's the point of Romans chapter 1. So, there you go. You've got some idea of uh, what we're going to be talking about, except we only have seven minutes. Yeah, you have, you have, you have seven minutes to, to make your presentation as to why um, your viewpoint is how Christians should defend the faith, and then we've got questions, and so it'll be, it'll be fast. Uh, there's, there's no ways about it, but that's why I wanted to take some time and uh, address that in a little bit uh, fuller fuller fashion there. So hopefully that was useful to you. 
and um, maybe challenging if that's not your perspective to think through uh, where we're coming from on that. So, but we do have one more program during the week on Thursday here. And uh, thank you for listening to the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless you.